Hey everyone, welcome to Simplexity, where we simplify the complexities of life and bring a little curiosity and contemplation to meaningful, sometimes difficult conversations. I'm your host, Allison Stoner, and if you're watching this and not just listening, you can see that I am in a new environment and I am currently nomadic. So if you see anything on the walls written in chalk that you don't agree with, just know those are not my personal convictions. Everyone else who stayed here decided to share their art, which is wonderful and ties into today's episode. All right, let's get into it. Right now, history is being written. Well, actually, first the dominant historical narratives we were fed are being deconstructed, challenged, and rewritten more comprehensively. But a hundred years from now, the chapter about the U.S. in 2020 will be quite a page turner. That is, depending on who controls authorship, right? In this moment, we're still experiencing a once-in-a-century pandemic that is rattling our equilibrium, orientation, and of course, the economy. There are hundreds of thousands of individuals taking to the streets, social media, and Capitol Hill to abolish systemic racism and evolve the Black Lives Matter movement into a foundation-shaking revolution. We're celebrating an increasingly global intersectional Pride Month. It's an election year. I mean, I could throw in climate change, impending singularity, and plenty other matters, but let's take it three at a time, shall we? During periods marked by civil unrest and massive social activism, change looms, whether we're dying for it or resisting it. Take Pride Month, for example, which commemorates one such historic time, the Stonewall Uprising. In June 1969, police violently raided the Stonewall Inn, an LGBTQ bar in New York City. P.S. This was a time when your sexuality was subjected to law enforcement by the Public Morals Division and could result in arrest and even hospitalization. Though the community regularly experienced targeted raids, this night they resisted and fought back. The six-day uprising that followed became the catalyst for the modern LGBTQIA rights movement and the establishment of the month-long celebration of Pride in June. Oh, you thought this was just gay people wanting attention? Mmm, strong nope, stay tuned. LGBT rights have come a long way since the 60s. I mean, as a member of the community myself, I can now legally marry and adopt children. <laughs> but there's still much more work to be done in the name of equality, acceptance, visibility, and human rights, way more than we could ever cover in one episode. You might have heard that the Supreme Court just ruled that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that is 64, y'all, which is a provision barring discrimination based on a number of characteristics, including sex, applies to discriminating based on sexual orientation and gender identity. While this win can provide more protection in hiring practices, the facts are one in five hate crimes targets people based on their sexual orientation. And the numbers are on the rise, according to the FBI's most recent hate crime statistics. Even more startling, anti-trans violence rose 34% from the previous year's statistics. So how do we protect, defend, and ensure equal freedom and justice for all, not just the majority? 
Well, a simple starting point would be validating that the injustices faced by the LGBTQIA community and the Black community and the Muslim community and the, and the, and the are in fact real, provable, ongoing, destructive, and yet, frankly, we don't unanimously ascribe to this consciousness, even if our perspective denies people's lived experiences. But let's say we did. Then we need to recognize that true liberation and equity for marginalized and systemically, systematically oppressed people require more than a week-long or month-long celebratory acknowledgement of their human existence. It gets into reform, education, healthcare, personal relationships, everything. Are those of us in a majority or dominant group in the US and of course worldwide, for example, here in the US, white people or males or Christians, ready for that full life pivot? Are we willing to decenter our comfort? which as we're seeing is complicit in the oppression and subjugation of other people to design a new society and culture that enables real equal access and freedom for everyone. Well, history is currently being written and a major player in documenting and reinforcing any movement is media, content, news, movies, music, social media, art, creation in all forms, assist powerful shifts. In the case of LGBTQIA folks in the States, now that more of our voices are being heard, it's pretty impossible to ignore that the widely disseminated version of reality and events has been nefariously skewed and harmful. Which leads me to today's guest from the UK, Ashton Adams, a 21-year-old queer Black artist has been sought out for their works by Adidas, Universal Music, Vice, Instagram, and more. Their art celebrates diversity and draws attention to important social issues through an art form that usually represents only the majority. We're going to talk about finding inspiration, <laughs> the role of social justice in art, visibility in the queer community, collaborating with brands while keeping your authentic voice, and so much more. Welcome to Simplexity, Ashton. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yes, it's our pleasure. So I want to first jump in with talking about the medium that you use. Um, you're definitely not an armchair artist. You've you know studied fine art in London mm -hmm. and honed your talent. Um, we're in an era where memory cards have widely replaced film and photography and television and movies, and then visual art is increasingly created on digital tablets and in lieu of paintbrushes and canvas. But you've stayed true to using acrylic paint to express your vision. Why do you prefer acrylics as a, a medium to work with? I'm primarily a painter. That's what I started off doing as an artist. And the style that I've got crosses both. Like it, it can look digital, but it can also look tangible in the form of paint. And I like to create that, that bridge between the two. And I think that in a world that is so digital now, like everything, as you say, that we do is we access it through, through TV screens or phone screens. And it's, it's nice to have something that is still tactile, still tangible, 
And I just think that art, it should be something that can still stay true to its original form, but be modern at the same time, you know, with its themes and its concepts. So yeah, it's just a balance, I think, for me. Right. Like being modern does not imply dehumanizing the experience. (laughs) Exactly. I think a lot of the time people feel that paintings are quite outdated, especially like as I went to art school, the painters of the of the uni kind of were seen as a little bit stuck in the day or a bit outdated. And it depends on what you're talking about. And because of the messages and the concepts that I do speak about, which are very, very current and topical, it's important that I still, you know, represent really what what painting can be about and how universal it can be. Speaking of style, Mm -hmm. so many notable artists have their iconic style and it's consistent across their portfolio. You know, everyone knows a Picasso when they see Cubist faces and mm-hmm. Andy Warhol's colorful pop art incorporating, you know, photos and silk screening processes. It's, it's immediately identifiable. For those listening, if you notice, those are both white guys, if you didn't catch the trend. And I have a side question for everyone listening. Who's your favorite historical Black, Indigenous, or artist of color? Did you learn about any? Because I actually took art classes and I did not learn about any artists of color until I did my own delving into further artworks. So back to you, Ashton. You also have your own distinct style. Notably, the eyes of your subjects are always closed. How did you come to this choice and and what do the shut-eyed individuals represent? So for anyone who's not maybe aware, um, you know, my my work is really about celebrating what life would look like if we lived in a sort of queertopia or, you know, a utopic society where everyone was, you know, respected and loved and, you know, given, given the nurture that we all deserve. And the characters reflect that. For me, I think having the, the shut eyes, it just shows how, how at peace they are with existing and how tranquil and how relaxed they feel. You know, when you have your eyes shut, it's kind of this like blissful aesthetic. So yeah, they've always got their eyes closed just to sort of, I guess, show that, um, that level of peace. But yeah, it, it's, just a, it's just a commentary really of what my, the rest of my work tries to say which is which is joy and celebration yeah and in a way it almost is helpful having shut eyes to not be distracted by trying to interpret what someone is saying with their eyes but to actually mm-hmm. get straight into the feeling of the piece exactly exactly it's like almost like my work is something that I want people to to look at and imagine you know what our society could look like and with that comes a sort of sense of dreaming or or hope and I think when people are dreaming they're often asleep so it's kind of that transportation to you know living if you were living in a sort of dreamland but it's possible you know all of these things that I've created and paint are possible it just requires a shift from society you know it's not an out of reach target it's just that we all need to come together and pull our weight and do our own work to make a better life. Absolutely. And there is for sure this tectonic shift happening. Mm -hmm. And I know that speaking of keeping their eyes shut, it's something that the, I think it was the reform, the funk article had a theory. Yeah. And they were like, you know, it's an act of defiance. (laughs) Um, And I don't know if that resonates with you, but I also think defiance is often depicted as this 
loud rebellion when really closing your eyes and choosing to rest and find bliss amidst something that isn't yet manifested in the utopian way that you're envisioning is still defiance. It's a resistance to the to the status quo. Exactly. And I feel now more than ever with all that's going on politically and with COVID that people need to prioritize rest and relaxation because that in itself is a really powerful thing. And there's so many ways to make change. But if you're not rested and you're not, you know, rejuvenated, you're not going to be able to achieve anything. So that is something that we all need to make sure that we're doing. It's true. And specifically for white people or people who are less versed in discussing race in a time when race is the topic, um, mm-hmm. as, as it always should have been. But now that there is that level of attention on it, we're seeing how the white body does not have stamina to have mm. these conversations. Because I'll speak for myself, I've never had to confront it in this visceral way and and shoulder some of the pain and not just empathize from afar or follow the playbook of activism, signing the petition and showing up to protest, but really actually getting into the racialized trauma that is both felt and persistently cast onto other people, specifically in, in our situation, white people and black people and people of color. And I'm, I'm witnessing this exhaustion on both sides for very different reasons. And it's, it's going to be interesting to try and develop tools for everyone and the distinct needs of different communities so that the real work can take place sustainably and not just be this like hurrah moment. Because I mean, as we know, we make progress and then institutions yeah. still have the loopholes and the ways of fortifying themselves, um, even when it looks like we're, we're going toward equality or, you know, a fairer, more equitable society. So it's, yeah, it runs deep. It's, it's, it's momentum, isn't it? As you say, like, you know, these changes aren't going to happen overnight. And people now, I think more than ever, are clubbing together and realizing that, you know, there's power in numbers and that this time really does provide space for change. But people are, as you say, are going to be exhausted and and for different reasons. But it's just realizing, you know, what needs to be done in order to to create the most most success in terms of change. Yes. And so speaking of maintaining a sense of hope and and optimism (laughs) and fortitude and inspiration through your art you've recently tackled issues ranging from the importance of voting to trans rights black lives matter supporting medical providers during the pandemic and then you've also created artworks featuring recipes like lemon (laughs) where do you find and maintain your inspiration when you're deciding to make a new piece so i you know for the for the last few years i've always been I suppose, committed and and driven by making work that's topical and that can comment on what people are feeling and voice what's current. But it's, you know, I do have such a a mix. As you just said, you know, I've got these really heavy, deep topics that are so, so important, you know, on a wider scale. But then, you know, recipe for lemon cake and just to um, dispel any kind of like confusion, what, what's going on there with the lemon cake. So I illustrated a lemon, re- lemon cake recipe, which was for 
it was something for people to do at the start of lockdown because as we all know you know it's this this thing with covid has just taken everyone out really it's, it's unexpected and whilst we were all together in our homes and not really doing too much it was just a way it was a, it's a play on words of when life gives you lemons you know you make lemonade sort of thing so mine was you make lemon cake it was just giving someone or people a little bit of hope to turn a bad situation a little bit sweeter but my inspiration for all my work really just comes from what I feel connected to or what I feel that isn't getting enough airtime air or enough people talking about it so I direct my art to people so that they can do their own research or or become more aware on the topics that I'm talking about it's really just to my artwork serves different purposes sometimes it's to uplift a lot of the time it is to you know, uplift and create joy in people in dark times. But it's also to point people in the right direction towards resources or towards other people who can give their experience. It's really just, I just use the artwork as a tool, as an extension of my own voice, really. So let's then get specific about the <laughs> pieces. Um, let's talk about your 2018 series, Queering the mm-hmm. So this series highlighted people who aren't often represented in art, And you've noted that originally you intended the art to be specifically for the people you were representing, but then your intent sort of evolved over time. And now the art is is meant to be enjoyed by all. What brought about this shift in your goals with your audience? So the work in terms of who is in the paintings and who I represent has stuck the same. You know, I'm always careful and committed to making sure that the little people, my subjects in my paintings and illustrations are underrepresented and uncelebrated people. So that's queer people, trans people, people of color, black people, et cetera, et cetera. But I realized that if I just made my work specifically to be received and to be consumed by those people in the painting, so underrepresented people, then change isn't really going to happen because there's no point preaching to the converted. You know, the the work that I make is aesthetically pleasing. You know, I think even though I work with very political themes and, and socially engaged topics, it's aesthetically attractive. You look at it and you think, oh, that's, you know, nice colours or nice shapes. And it's only really when people take a deeper look that they realise who are in the paintings, what identities they have, what topics, what politics that I'm talking about so it's almost a way I use my work and its aesthetics to draw people in who maybe would have just walked past it or just thought oh yeah okay nice painting but yeah I think it's important that even though the the subjects in the work obviously they must keep, they must stay the same it's always to prioritize and center underrepresented people it is important that I reach out and I do extend my work to so that other people can access it who maybe just you know aren't so aware or aren't so engaged with socially engaged topics or people's lives who they wouldn't really know about. Did you end up making some adjustments in the quote-unquote palatability of how underrepresented people are then depicted as opposed to, for example, you know, I'm thinking about the dance community. And so Mm -hmm. many of us are also a part of the queer community. And the way that we can banter back and forth and Mm -hmm. dress up and perform internally with each other is has a different level of expression and texture Mm. to the interactions than when we go out and present ourselves to the world even though we're still 
operating in, in our artistry, did you notice any kind of legitimate shifts in details or how people were depicted? Or did you say, no, I want to retain the full truth mm. of this identity and then let people, you know. Yeah, that's that's live. really interesting what you were saying about about the dance, you know, being in being in the dance sort of community. And to be quite honest, I feel like my style and and you know the way that I represent and depict people hasn't actually changed even though I guess my target audience has expanded a little bit. All I would say is I'll give you um, a little like example or story. So the other day I, you know, worked with Vice um, for an article which was about TERFs in Britain and sort of transphobic views. I was given the opportunity to illustrate a sort of closed-minded, bigoted woman, a TERF. And I've never done that before. I was really kind of at... Um, you know, kind of at this little conflict where I've I've built up this portfolio, this this body of work that's been nothing but joy and just celebration and hope. And it was like, oh, I don't I don't want to include I don't want to include someone who's who's got different views. I don't want to include transphobia in my work. So all I did was I, you know, in that instance, I, I had to I had to illustrate her because at the end of the day, the views that those sorts of people they 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 exist, but I challenged them with my usual characters, the way that I included my normal characters with the exact same and I changed her appearance so that she wasn't associated with my work in general does that make sense so the way that I depicted her and her aesthetic just you know small tiny little minor detail changes and adjustments automatically made her look different it was almost like I separated from her from the rest of my work so that she's not included within this kind of queer topic celebration of queerness and blackness and everything different so yeah I think you know as a whole and consistently over the last few years I really have stuck true to to my values and to my aesthetics and to everything that I I endeavor to represent and nothing no matter who is consuming my work you know nothing will will change that and I think it's important to acknowledge too you know for people listening who may who maybe say well isn't that excluding other people now and to honor distinct spaces and places and reasons that certain artworks are representing what they're representing and knowing Mm. that no singular piece of artwork is going to summarize the totality of the human experience. So to be able to highlight and honor an experience that's not typically honored and recognize also, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I bet there's a possibility that it wasn't you trying to attack the human being as much as acknowledge the toxicity of course the view if her worldview and her behavior was kind of more in alignment then maybe the level of adjusting wouldn't have needed no exactly I feel like you know at the end of the day I as a person and as an artist I'm very aware that people will see my work and be at different points of education and you know, there's nothing wrong with with not understanding things or having questions. Not everyone is at that same point of understanding or awareness, and that's fine. But I think, you know, this this specific article that I had to provide an illustration for, it wasn't about anyone in particular or, or no specific individual, but more just what transphobia can look like when it's personified. Or the it was giving examples of of transphobic transphobic narratives in Britain. So. You know, obviously, as I say, I'm not really, that's not something that I often work with. I'm I'm quite the opposite. Rather than illustrating or, or painting pieces of, of transphobia, it's it's painting pieces of 
trans joy and trans celebration. So it was quite interesting having to paint and provide artwork for actually the reverse, you know? Yes, yeah. And and then another painting, which it was called Don't Stay in Your Lane, yeah. um, from the same series. And, and you won the Evening Standard Art Prize and you got a solid amount of media attention from it. What impact did the success and visibility of this work have on your career path? No, definitely. I mean, you know, that, that was two years ago now. Um, and I think at the time it was, it was, you know, it was an incredible moment. It really was just, you know, a really fantastic achievement. And it definitely did. It actually opened up an opportunity for me then to work with, with Universal Music, um, which I know you mentioned earlier. So yeah, I think it's like anything when your your work is put on such a such a platform for anyone who doesn't know that even the standard is a London newspaper. Um and it it just really it allowed me to work with people that I, I didn't know before. It gave me opportunities that I wouldn't have had. Um and I think it was actually the catalyst for the momentum that I've had since, if that makes sense. So everything that's happened since that, I do think I think everything happens to reason. And I think that everything that has happened in my life professionally as an artist are like little stepping stones to where I am now so you know I think without that opportunity and without that success of the evening standards I think you know where I'm at now probably would have been a different point. This is a a side question so maybe you know feel free to to skip around when you experience more access I feel people are affected differently by it sometimes it inflates the personal ego other times especially if you're connected to a deeper driver and mission for the collective it increases the level of responsibility (laughs) and -hmm. accountability that's like okay now I have this network now I need to like really show up and make sure I don't you know miss every single chance to to move the needle um do you find that same kind of pressure and responsibility or are you still just like able to stay stay in your lane <laughs> you know i i remember having a conversation with a tutor before at uni in my first year and she said some you know something along the lines of as an artist, there's often this pressure to feel like you have to represent everyone and everything. And whilst, yeah, that's somewhat true, you do feel like, especially with the work that I do, I do feel, you know, there's a massive community within within both parts of my identity, being queer and being black, and just other people that I have no connection to, but I still feel like they need a voice and I, you know, I should make artwork about it. But it's impossible to make artwork that comments or represents and reflects absolutely everything at once, you know? And I think it's actually the job of, or not the job, but it's the role of, of society and media as a, as a collective to make sure that they are platforming and highlighting artists of different abilities and different avenues so that we are given a more of a universal and holistic experience, if that makes sense. You know, obviously I endeavour with each painting that I do that, I've got loads of different, wonderful, diverse, colourful characters from all walks of life that I represent. But I think it's it also is not just my responsibility. It's the responsibility of the curator or the responsibility of, of programmers for different events to make sure that their lineup of, of creative people is diverse, are diverse. You know, the actual identity of those individuals are diverse, not just the artist itself, you know? Yes, absolutely. Take this soundbite and... <laughs> make it go viral. Make it go viral. Um, so I, I, I want to ask a little bit 
about what it's like to experience brand theft when you're creating mm -hmm. a piece of art. And then I also want to ask more about sexuality and, and queer identity, but we'll be taking a commercial break before then. So on the topic of, of brand theft, as you know, and I do as well, um, artists have struggled with companies and brands stealing designs, ideas, and it happens a lot. For example, Disney has been accused of lifting Katie Woodger's Alice in Wonderland design. Zara has copied a handful of artists Tuesday Bossens, pin designs. I hope I pronounced your name correctly, Tuesday. And Brandy Melville used artist Brain Fetus's embroidery design on a shirt without permission. Now, after your Evening Standard win, um, designer Tom Brown released an article of clothing printed in, in a design eerily resembling your painting. And you did call him out, though he denied the claim. How do you deal with the constant threat of your art getting used by brands without permission? And have you now kind of created a certain protocol that protects your IP? Actually, yeah, right now in, you know, the last few weeks, actually, I was going towards those steps and making it happen because I think as someone who, you know, I'm, I'm 21 and I, I hold my hands up, I am still learning. I'm still making sure that I understand all these things, um, especially to do with intellectual property. And I am actually currently, you know, talking to someone who can make sure that my work is protected. So that's a step, an active step I'm now taking. But um, yeah, I think just going forward, I think having that protection will definitely prevent things like what's happened in the past from hopefully happening ever again you know unfortunately as you say it does happen to creatives all of the time and I think with creative work it is hard sometimes to make sure that you've got everything covered especially when you've got a style actually like I've read and understand now that it's quite hard to protect all of the elements that that make up your style as an illustrator, but we'll get there and I'll make sure that, you know, nothing unjust happens again. Right. It's easy for people to keep art in the realm of like subjectivity and therefore, mm -hmm. you know, you can get a pass because this actually didn't mean that. And to try and use the abstraction narrative or the vague sort of like, oh, it was yeah. interpreted a different way. You can't trace that <laughs> a single person, but really we artists in the community can very easily see, again, I'll speak in the dance community, where you see a groove originate in a city, uh, in, a, in a neighborhood, and then it gets sort of co-opted or, you know, it, it gets spread around and it can evolve and people can add to culture and can co-create together. But there is something about respecting the origin and then making sure, especially if someone is profiting off of it, that it is the original designer. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear that because Man, I've had plenty of stuff stolen. Oh, no. But, no. but hard lesson learned, right? It was like, ooh. I think it makes you more, I don't know if skeptical is the right word, but just a little bit more careful. It's not the individual's fault. You know, it's not your fault that things have been stolen from you. It's not my fault that, you know, what happened happened, but it definitely makes you more conscious and aware of that these things can happen because before I wasn't even, you know, I didn't, I thought, oh no, you know, nothing like that will happen. And then, you know, here we go. But I yeah. think, you know, you do 
Jilan, you Jilan. The world is big and it is complex <laughs> and we got to protect our IP. <laughs> um, so I, I want to um, ask about working with Instagram further and then dive into gender and sexuality since we've got two queer folks on the podcast today. Um, Amazing. First, we are going to take a quick break. Welcome back. We are here with artist and activist Ashton Atz. Um, so you have collaborated, as we mentioned, with some of the biggest companies in the world. And most recently, you collaborated with Instagram, um, which is a pretty big deal. Uh, you created the Pride stickers um, for Instagram. And I'm sure everyone with an account has seen them as they are prominently featured on the platform. What was this process like? And how has seeing so many people using the stickers affected you? It's just been incredible. Like the last few weeks, just seeing so many people that I know and don't know on the timeline, on stories, just everything, seeing my little designs, the stickers everywhere and, you know, just everywhere. It's, it's, it's a really wonderful feeling. And I think my work has always existed to, to reach out and to branch out. And this is pos possibly, well, actually, it's definitely the biggest platform um, that, that could happen. And in terms of the process, it kind of like, you know, it just involved me thinking of, of what I actually wanted to create in terms of the initial sketches. So the theme obviously was just pride, you know, it was pretty open in that sense. We could interpret it, I could interpret it how, exactly how I wanted. And I created two stickers. One is the two hearts. So there's a trans, trans flag heart and a sort of all-inclusive LGBTQ plus flag, the rainbow one. And they're sort of holding hands, leaning into one another. And then there's also the other sticker of a little Dalmatian holding a pride flag. So they're two quite different, um, two different designs, but... Ultimately, um, you know, they, they first existed by me just sort of sitting in my room and, and thinking about what exactly what it was I wanted to get across. And I think ultimately it is just what my work is always about, which is community and celebration. So the hearts in particular are about how we are all different and there's so many different people and different identities within, within the queer community, but how we all, especially in this time, need to come together and support one another and, you know, the pride, uh, the dog, the Dalmatian one with the little flag is a little comment on how pride this year is is different. You know, obviously, we a lot of the world is still in lockdown or some of us are coming out of lockdown, but there's still this issue with, with COVID going on. And it was a kind of little symbol of how we can celebrate pride, but from home and how we can still engage with our community from home, because the sticker is kind of like a little play on of like, pets of pride and how people have sort of pets that you know we're all so connected to our little pets at home and it's just yeah making making the best I guess of a bad situation and still keeping that element of joy and hope and and community even if it's with different people so yeah you know the process was really really fun to to have these concepts in an early stage and then develop them and bring them out into this into this final form. Now yeah, they're used by everyone. <laughs> I know, that's so exciting. Congrats. Um, Thank you. Let's talk a little bit more about that development because when you're working with a brand, there's a balance of maintaining your 
authentic voice and um, you know protecting your original concept and style but then also knowing that you've been hired you know that people are looking to commission for their own for lack of a better term right now agenda or a brand so how much of a say do you get in the process and how do you deal with you know, getting pushback on your ideas when it's such an important and like critical topic? I mean, all of the commissions I've ever had, the clients approached me, obviously, you know, some, some commissions you as the artist will, will approach, especially if it's kind of like a public call out or submission. So anyone that I've ever really worked with have, have come to me. And I've always remembered that that's always been, I suppose, the thing that's, that's motivated me or, or made me think that, I need to stay stay true to what I'm about because at the end of the day, the client has come to me knowing full well what I'm about and the principles that I have and who I represent and everything that it stands for. So there'd be absolutely no need for me to, to dilute myself or dilute my work for the validation of anyone else because I've had things come my way where there's been a proposal to do something and I'm sure it would have been a really, really good opportunity particularly financially but it's you know principles and ethics haven't lined up with what I'm about so I've had to say no because at the end of the day I'm not gonna sacrifice what I'm about especially if it's gonna harm people who I'm representing or go against the morals that I've got for my work and as an individual so I think you know any artist I'd say this to anyone and not just my just not just to myself just when you have got standards for yourself and standards for your work you've got to prioritize that always because there are going to be opportunities that come up which sound really really fantastic but if it's not lining up with with your standards and your morals then you've you've got to let it go really but yeah you know my work the the people that I have worked with all of the clients and some of the the biggest brands and names that I have worked with in in the last sort of few years they've all been very very fantastic they've always accepted who I am, my identity as a, as a queer, black, non-binary person, they've always respected that and embraced that. And they've never, I don't think I've ever had anyone actually say, oh, can you tone it down a bit? We don't, we don't want that. Which, <laughs> when we said queer, we really only meant you. We didn't mean the whole word. <laughs> Honestly, you know, I, I think, and that's great because I always was a little bit, I suppose, sceptical putting myself on such a platform and allowing myself like we were speaking earlier that my work would access spaces that originally maybe I thought they would and I thought oh god like I'm gonna have this dilemma where now I'm gonna have to maybe change things or create a, a, an alternative but I've always in my heart wanted to do the work that I'm doing which is authentically being me and making the work for the people that I love and care about so I'm not ever gonna put that second to any other opportunity. That's incredibly important. I mean, I have a lot of respect for for you in the process and maintaining your standard. And I'm also learning that as well. It does change if you're able to have the comforts of shelter and access to food. You know, then it's like, okay, I have this standard and it's it's quite easy to upkeep. But Mm -hmm. when things are threatened or there's a lack of stability, and then the opportunity presents itself, there are more layers to those decisions that many people are making right now going, okay, I don't want to compromise, but I need to feed my kids. But, oh, you know, and, and so there, so there's definitely complexity to it, but being able to start at the, at the space of integrity and to, to commit to that is, 
I really do think that is the way that more authentic voices would be able to be heard. I mean, if we're only conforming, if we're only trying to be uniform in the way that we dress and speak and act, there's no true diversity in that. And I'm not just Mm. talking about sexuality. I'm not just talking about race, but all of the various spectrums that humans represent. It's beautiful to see that kind of unapologetic truth. You know, I'm inspired by you and I hope that I can offer the same to people who listen and watch my stuff. Sometimes I actually think people are able to pick up on your truth more than you think you're giving away. Um, That's very true. When people will comment, I'm like, hey, I noticed A, B, and C about you. And I'm like, oh, I don't know that I was even (laughs) trying to share those cards with the world, but you know, the veil is being broken down and I'm, I'm all for that. I'm like, let's be transparent. We, we all got a lot of, a lot of things inside. Moving forward, I do want to talk about non-binary identities and gender and sexuality. So as most people who have listened to the rest of this episode are becoming aware of the visibility of, of non-binary people in media and art is sorely missing. And in turn, many people, at least in the States, lack an understanding and awareness of this entire community. Non-binary identities have actually been recognized for millennia by tons of cultures and societies around the world. However, our U.S. society specifically tends to recognize just two genders, man and woman, hence the gender binary, I can't speak for the UK, but the bulk of your work features non-binary subjects. How do you want this increased representation in the arts and media to affect the non-binary community and the public at large? I feel like that, you know, obviously there's still a lot of work to be done. I think I am, you know, I'm a hopeful person and I'm, I would, I'm positive that change will come. And I think that all it really takes is that more people are given an opportunity, more people are given voices to share their experience of what it is to be to be non-binary. And, you know, there's all sorts of things that still need to happen. But I feel like, especially in within the sort of art, creative, media world, I would say that giving actual non-binary people the opportunities is is key. You know, like you can't, for example, you can't make a film about a non-binary person and employ someone to play that role who's not. I feel like, you know, at the end of the day, there there are people out, out here that need a seat at the table, you know, that need the whole table to speak upon these things. And you're not gonna, you're not gonna see change in society and you're not gonna see things materialize unless real people are actually given the chance. So I'd say that's the, the first thing. But, you know, as an artist, I've always sort of prioritised, as we said earlier, non-binary and genderqueer trans people in my works. And that isn't something really that I see in artwork. As you said earlier, you know, if you ask people their favourite artist, it's, it's usually a white, straight, you know, man. And the people in paintings are, are very rarely, you don't really see much gender diversity. So I think, yeah, it's just, it's really about the authentic exposure and allowing people that do need to be heard that chance you know so 
yeah, I just think it, it just it just needs more people out there. Because there's so many people, especially in London, as I say, I, I can't speak about America, but I know here in London, there are so many amazing non-binary artists who are doing amazing stuff and doing bits. So it's just going to, it needs just momentum. We need to see more of us doing our thing in our spaces and changing the dynamics of the canon. Do you have any uh, favorite non-binary artists out of the UK or around that you would be like, yeah, you have to check out so-and-so? Yeah, so... There's Wednesday, um, they're called Wednesday, Wednesday, I think it's Wednesday Homes, uh, my name is Wednesday on Instagram, um, and they're an, they're amazing non-binary illustrator, so I definitely would shout them out, and also Travis Alabanza, who's a playwright and does a lot of plays and theatre, theatre work, um, there's so, so many, there's so many. I work a lot with other sort of queer and non-binary people, just, you know, my personal life, but yeah, I think there's just there, there just needs to be more exposure for for people doing good things. Yeah, I hope that everyone listening, like, let's go check out those artists. <laughs> go down a rabbit hole. So one of the issues of the many we've touched on, you've addressed through your art, it, it focuses on the importance of ending intersex surgeries for youth. Now, this mm-hmm. is um, for those who are who are listening who aren't familiar, talking about intersex versus gender identity versus gender expression versus sexual orientation. These are all different dimensions of a human's experience. So if, if this is confusing to you, what a great opportunity to open up Google. So yes, you've, you've touched on the importance of ending intersex surgeries. Now, children and infants undergo these surgeries without having a say in their own body autonomy and um, are not able to consent while the parents, you know, succumb to the pressure from doctors and, and outside forces telling them to normalize their children and, you know, pick a side. Why, in your opinion, ending youth intersex surgeries so important? And can medical professionals change their views of sex so yeah I would feel like for me I I hold my hands up you know I I I only recently actually discovered about you know intersex surgeries what that meant what that looked like and who that impacted and I think that's that's the problem that so many people don't know about it you know I think so many people just if you said intersex surgeries maybe I'm wrong maybe people are more clued up but I don't think it's something that people are too aware of. And it, that needs to change in itself. There needs to be more light shed on that issue because it's not right that, you know, young kids are subjected to this to this procedure that, to be honest, they don't really need. And it's just a way of making them fit into a box that society has. As someone who, feel very, who feels very strongly about liberation and making sure that people feel happy and accepted as they are, I don't think that that is something that, in society we need to allow to keep having in terms of medical professionals you know their view of sex I don't know I'm not really quite sure because I think that even though gender and sex are completely different things and we all know that well some of us know that I do feel like in terms of in the medical world it's not my forte so I wouldn't know how they would feel about it but I'd like to think that if it's 
harming other people and impacting people in a negative way that something can be done to support those individuals because whatever structures and whatever things that we know about life and science they they shouldn't be used to harm other people so that needs to change regardless yes and even if it wasn't designed with malintent which is of course debatable but i personally wasn't in the room when Mm -hmm. No, certain laws are passed or certain standards are and procedures are set up. But now that we know, we're accountable and we can make mm-hmm. the adjustment and we can course correct. And I do think we're at a time right now with the rapid shifts occurring where there's a skill that we're honing, which is once you know, be willing to change. And if you learn mm-hmm. something tomorrow, be willing to change again and to not yeah. be fixed in our ways, our rigid, yes, no, black, white, in, out, right, wrong ways, but really to start embracing this this queer-friendly term of fluid approach (laughs) to transformation inwardly and also collectively. Now, there's a, a massive gap in education across all of these topics and, you know, especially things like sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression beyond the hetero patriarchal normative standards, um, which is making it all the more daunting to, you know, privately and publicly navigate life as a non-binary person. What are some struggles that non-binary people face when coming out, when interacting Mm -hmm. with the world that gender binary and heterosexual people do not experience? I would say that when you are non-binary, because it's, it's such a there's no way, I mean, there's no way to be anything. There's no, There's nothing, there's no way to dictate how people should live or how they should express or present. But I think with being a non-binary person, that's amplified. There is no way to be non-binary. And I think as a society, for those who do actually know what non-binary is, there's still a kind of stereotype or, a, or an idea of, of what it looks like, which is often someone who was born, born a woman or born female, I should say, um, quite masculine presenting, quite thin, white. That is an assumption that is wrong at the end of the day because people are people and everyone's different and anyone can identify with being non-binary. But I would say a problem that non-binary face that others don't is that when you come out as non-binary, you can obviously be accepted and seen as as who you are within your within the within your friends and the people that that respect you, but unfortunately, we still live in a society that is binary. So when you step out of the door and you go into your shop or you go to, you know, I don't know, the airport or whatever, you'll still have those those markers that will assign you to either man or woman. So it can be quite disheartening, I think, being non-binary because you're always going to face at this present time in in life being misgendered because we still live in a binary world. So people will just assume and put you in one box or the other, which it's, it's frustrating because we do know that gender is not just man and woman, but there's still a lot of people who aren't at that point yet. And that's, that's not to say that they're, they're wrong. Obviously, everyone's at a different point of understanding and learning, but it's just about being diplomatic and being open-minded and respecting people when they have told you something. I think I say that's all that really needs to be done is that if someone says I am non-binary and these are my pronouns, it really doesn't take much to respect that. So that's one way that we can sort out and alleviate some of the problems that non-binary people do face is just basic respect and acceptance. And also creating templates that are inclusive 
and even down to, you know, when you have certain companies who are now like, okay, fill in this quiz, fill mm-hmm. in this little questionnaire. And there are at least options that are not just male, female, man, woman, but actually speak to other gender yeah. identities and different sexes. And like, that's a, a small, but it valuable stride and then you know looking at yeah every industry it has to permeate healthcare it has to permeate education and textbooks it has to permeate fashion you know food oh, like yeah. everything <laughs> just you know yeah but, but but just because it started one way doesn't mean that it was started correctly or conclusively and i think exactly. that's really really hard for for some folks to wrap their minds around is that just because we inherited a certain narrative does not mean that that no. narrative was complete correct or even worth you know maintaining you know, this is of course an invitation for everyone listening to consider your own lifestyle and day-to-day operations and and ask yourself what would it look like to create a safer world that's just more accessible and affirming like just we're we're asking for dignity we're not asking for like special uh no special treatment yeah i don't need to be on a pedestal yeah unique i'm i'm actually asking to just be acknowledged for for my humanity so, okay, I'm going to make another shift into an equally as complicated and deep topic. So following George Floyd's murder and, and the massive mm-hmm. support for Black Lives Matter, people have begun demonstrating around the globe. And I'm, I'm curious to hear, you know, we see what we see in the States. Um, what has the movement looked like in the UK? And how have you been involved? Have you seen change in your community or even in your art? Yeah, I mean, London, alongside everywhere in the world, I think is waking up. Every Everywhere seems to be waking up and really seeing what's going on in this world and what needs to be changed. And it's incredible to see, you know, the protests daily that seem to be taking place in London, various marches demanding justice for, for different things regarding Black Lives Matter. Me personally, as I live with, I live at currently due to COVID, I'm living at home with my parents who are older. So I haven't been able to attend, but that's something that I've been quite vocal about on my social media because I understand for various reasons that there's lots of people who won't be able to go to marches, whether that's disability reasons, mental health, physical health, just whatever it is, like, whatever it is, not everyone is able to to go to marches, but there's active ways and so many valuable things that people can do that are just as just as equal and just as productive as, as showing up in the streets that people can do from home. So, you know, I've been using my platform as always to speak upon matters, to speak upon issues that are going on, but I've really directed my energy to the Black and queer Black community in this time who are struggling and their mental health is maybe being affected by all of the news. Recently, I came up with an initiative called Art For You and it was called Nurturing Black Joy. So it was a phone wallpaper that I specifically designed for Black people in this time. And all that they needed to do was to, to you know, to respond to my post that I put on Instagram just with a with their email address and I'd send them some free artwork, you know, free digital wallpaper because I thought that obviously now we're all spending more time on our phones, like more than ever. And I just wanted to create a piece of artwork that was bit comforting and, and joyful, but at the same time, 
nurturing. So yeah, it's just an image that I created and I'm, um, you know, doing some more with that initiative and bringing it to life in different ways and allowing people to make artwork because I think that art is something that is so, so soothing on a personal level, but if you use it on a, on a wider level and use it to educate and communicate to other people and shed light on things, it can just bring about so much change. So right now I've been using my art more than ever as a tool to stay engaged politically, but also to, to look after myself and to look after others that are being affected by all that's going on. That is so true about the multidimensionality of art. All of mm-hmm. the purposes, all of the functions, all of the gifts, all of the the ways that it brings life and vitality. It documents life and vitality. It showcases, you know, it's 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 just it really is such a universal thing for I'm like, yeah. what even <laughs> it's like such a <laughs> My friend was using the term amorphous blob. So I'm like, that's what came to mind. It's like this amorphous blob that is just available at all times and can be interpreted in infinite ways. And, you know, we are we are creative agents by, by nature. So that's amazing to hear all of the different ways that art is showing up in this time and that you're utilizing it and sharing it with people. How, how do you think we can whether we're, you know, a part of the queer community, the black community, or we're allies or we're accomplices, how do you think we can go about making sure that these movements and Pride Month and Black Lives Matter aren't just a moment, but actually are, you know, a year-round lifelong commitment? Is there something that's been illuminated in this time where you've Mm. you've spotted a gap and you're like, oh, we need to fill that or something that's changed even with you and how you plan to approach things? Yeah, I feel that, you know, obviously it's great to see so many people being more engaged and being more active with with various things, you know, with obviously all that's going on with, with the Black Lives Matter movement also pride but you know it is at the end of the day momentum and it is about being sustainable and being committed to the cause it's not as you say just a just a moment it's a movement and I think it's being dedicated to the cause authentically and all year round and I think that people can just it's more about just getting you involved on a on a sort of smaller level as well like things will change and things will will change in people's lives meaning that maybe they can't always go to every single protest you know that is is fine but it's about how can you change things in your own life so that you're still doing the work and you're still committed to helping other people and changing the way that society is and I would say that that just comes down to you know to a lot of it's just a conversation having difficult conversations challenging views of people that maybe aren't quite, you know, so so open-minded or so maybe so on board with respecting other people. So just having maybe difficult conversations that you've perhaps avoided before because you just want to please other people. But those are the sorts of things that people need to be doing, having these difficult conversations, educating yourself, just, you know, giving giving opportunities to to others who need it, sharing resources keeping well read on issues that are happening, not turning a blind eye to things when things are still happening. So I think it's just always keeping your foot on the pedal, like keeping your foot on the gas and not lifting it up just because it's, you know, it's it's inconvenient. Just, you know, implementing little steps and little stages in your life. And I think when you actually see people, when you interact with the people that these causes, whether it's pride for queer people or Black Lives Matter for black people, when you actually interact with real life, you know, breathing people that are, are living beside us and amongst us, 
it becomes more real because it's very easy sometimes to be detached from these things and think, oh, it's not, it's not me, it's not affecting me. But actually getting involved with your community and the people that this is affecting directly, I think will help people want to stay committed to it. Because once you, you connect with someone on a human level, I think it's, it's making that thing a little bit more real and a little bit more tangible. But yeah, I, I just think it is really just a momentum. It's, it's making sure that you really are committed to something always, not just when it's, you know, convenient or, or on topic or on brand, you know? So I hope that, you know, this conversation for everyone listening, depending on who you are, how you identify, what your background is, what all of the different, you know, boxes you check or don't check or you rebel against, that we can all agree that there's room to listen more, to learn more, to open up our points of view more, and especially to to affirm other people's lived realities and to make sure that we ourselves are not adding to the harm and escalation of what we're witnessing daily. So if there's anything that we didn't cover, let me know. Otherwise, I would love to hear like what's next for you and how follow your work and see more of your art and find you and say, we love you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I mean, immediately in, in terms of the next thing that I've got going on, and I'd love to have like so many people on board and, and getting involved I'm doing a workshop um I'm not sure if, if you guys are, I'm, I'm sure you would know in in, in America the Tate the Tate Modern it's a massive art gallery over here in London so on the 3rd of July I am doing my nurturing black joy art workshop and that's something that's being broadcasted on the 3rd of July and you know obviously for people who aren't black might think oh I don't think that's for me to get involved in but my mantra of the of the workshop is that it is for everyone to get involved but the physical outcome that you produce isn't something that is the priority it's more about who you can share it with so I'd like to invite anyone who does get involved if you know people do tune in and they want to they want to make some artwork with me think about who you can share the artwork with and who it might better benefit and who by sharing that artwork with it could actually evoke some joy so yeah it, it, it's July the 3rd July the 3rd on the Tate Modern website it's called Tate Late and the name of my workshop is Nurturing Black Joy with Ashton Ash so it's, it's pre-recorded but um, I'll be doing like a guided painting workshop and teaching people how to sort of make some really joyful nurturing artwork which I hope can bring some some happiness in this time and it'd be nice for, for people to get involved but that's that's immediately and if you know if anyone wants to follow me I am at so attzs underscore on Instagram. But that's 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 my plug done. <laughs> Yay! No, that's we're here to plug, here to plug. And and you said A T T Z S. Yes. We'll say that's a Z if you if you don't know Z. Oh yeah, Z. As the, as the character, as the letter. <laughs> I for, I forgot about that. <laughs> well, thank you so so much for joining us today. Thank you for sharing everything. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Like, thank you for having me on on your show. For everyone listening, you know, if, if some of these terms or topics are new and uncomfortable for you, I invite you to, to reopen that Google search bar and start, start somewhere. Just pick a spot and start. 
Okay, let's get into this week's affirmations. Every week, we explore new mantras that align with our episode topic and support our own personal growth so we can make measurable changes in ourselves and in our world. For this, I will give you three mantras that you can repeat after me. And take a moment to write these down somewhere so you can revisit them regularly to improve your state of being and and conscious awareness. I will say each twice and then you can repeat in the space for the third. Number one, change is not an out of reach target. We need to come together and pull our own weight to make a better life. Change is not an out of reach target. We need to come together and pull our own weight to make a better life. Your turn. Second, people are at different points of education and awareness. I will communicate for understanding, not just to be heard. People are at different points of education and awareness. I will communicate for understanding, not just to be heard. Your turn. And lastly, I will platform people of different avenues and abilities to paint a more comprehensive picture of humanity. I will platform people of different avenues and abilities to paint a more comprehensive picture of humanity. Your turn. Yes, indeed. Awesome. Thank you, as always, for listening and tuning in. I hope this is valuable to you. And if so, please share it with anyone you think might enjoy it. If you haven't already, absolutely would love for you to hit that subscribe button so you can be first to hear every week's episodes and um, much love to you i hope this finds everyone doing all right and finding ways to replenish just as quickly as getting involved in in what's being asked of us right now so thank you and i will see you all next week for more simplexity anything but small talk